And good morning again to all of you. It is so good to see you here, whether you're here with us in person or online. If you're new or just new today or new after a little while, uh, my name is Sandy. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm really glad to see you. We are continuing on today with our Summer on the Mount, working through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5 to 7. And we've spent the past couple of weeks with Pastor Rob and Pastor James and the Beatitudes. And then next week, Pastor John is going to be speaking to us about the Lord's Prayer. And so today, what I'm going to try to do is just sort of bridge that gap for us a little bit and maybe build a strategy for understanding the sermon as a whole. And in order to do that, I would like to start with a story. When I was seven years old, my family moved to Woodstock, New Brunswick, where my dad was one of the associate pastors of Woodstock Baptist Church, alongside our very own Pastor Joe. And for the record, what I am implying with this information is that I am very young, and not that Pastor Joe is old, okay? He's on vacation this week, don't get, go getting me into trouble when he comes back. I'm just very young. Uh, but one of my favorite things to do in that season in my, of my life was to sing in Joe's children's choir. We would get dropped off at the church after school, we would have a snack, there'd be a little bit of free time while we waited for everyone to arrive, and then we would practice. And you might expect that children would use that free time to, I don't know, talk to their friends or run or play, and you would be mostly right, except for me. I would go, I would get my snack, I would find a seat right in the front row, and I would sit there with my hands folded and my choir book on my lap so that I could be ready the very instant that Pastor Joe called us all together. Because if I was going to be in the choir, I was going to be the best little choir member that I could be. So imagine then this young little rule follower giving her life to Jesus, deciding to follow him, and then reading the Sermon on the Mount. And I have to tell you that when I did, it stressed me right out. Not so much the Beatitudes, I made it through those okay, but what really filled my little heart with deep, deep anxiety was this little cluster of verses right here and especially verse 14, and I'll read them for you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And you guys just don't seem properly scared, so I'm going to read the scary part for you again, okay? Are you ready? Jesus said, you are the light of the world. And immediately I think that, and I'm kind of like, well, that just can't be right. So let me check that out again in a few different versions. So we've got NLT, you are the light of the world. ESV, you are the light of the world. NIV, you are the light of the world. King James Version, ye are the light of the world. Different, but not really very different. And my problem with this little verse was that it was actually really big. It's important, and it's high stakes. And I had no idea what it looked like in actual practice. You know, I knew what being a good choir member looked like. You show up early, you come prepared, you rehearse your part, and you're happy to be there. I know what that looks like, and so I can do it. I can practice it until I am the very best little choir member that I can be. But if I'm going to be the very best little light that I can be, I need to know what that actually looks like. What does it look like for you and for me to be the salt of the earth and to be the light of the world? 
And I mean that beyond just the function of the metaphors, because we all know, of course, that salt and light are important. And they're used throughout scripture in all sorts of important ways. You know, salt makes things palatable, makes them taste good. It cleanses and it preserves. It prevents corruption and decay. And light is the source of all life. It brings fullness and it brings clarity. It illuminates, it gives knowledge. And I don't think it really matters which specific meanings Jesus has in mind for these metaphors here, because they're all kind of pointing to the same thing, which is that salt and light are agents of change, which have a profound impact on their environment. And so Jesus is saying that as the salt and as the light, we're meant to be agents of change too. We are tasked with taking up the work that Jesus is doing. He has been the light. And now he has made us to be the light. He brought wholeness, and now he calls us to bring wholeness. And this is no small thing. So if I'm going to understand what this looks like in actual practice, then I need to understand what Jesus is doing. And more specifically, I need to know something about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew likes to call it. Because really, this is what Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is all about. It's a manifesto about the nature of this topsy-turvy kingdom where the first are last and the low are brought high and the outsider is brought in close. Just in these three short chapters from five to seven, Jesus mentions heaven or the kingdom of heaven 18 times. Now, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is, you can do it, the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> when he teaches us to pray, he teaches us to pray, your kingdom come. When we're putting first things first, Jesus says we're seeking the kingdom of God first. And if we miss this, if we miss the kingdom of heaven, then we're going to miss what Jesus is all about. And we're going to go about trying to be salt and light in all the wrong ways. And it will stay something that is scary and heavy. So before we even come to the Sermon on the Mount at all, we are going to spend some time with Jesus learning about his kingdom. And thankfully, he left us with a lot of stories to teach us about what the kingdom of heaven is like. So we're going to start in Matthew chapter 18, where in verses 23 to 35, Jesus told a story about a servant and a king, and he said that the kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay... The master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and then let him go. And I find it can sometimes be easier to relate a parable to our own circumstances if the units of measurement are ones that we're familiar with. So let me just translate that first part for you into our currency. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with a servant who owed him 172 kajillion trillion dollars. 10,000 or 10,000 talents is just a ridiculous, unfathomable amount of money. There are two units of measurement in this parable. One is the denarius, which is about equivalent to one day's wage as a laborer. And the other is a talent, which is 6,000 denarii, so 6,000 days wages is one talent. So if you do all the math, 
the amount the servant owed the king was an amount he would be able to pay off by working every day, 365 days a year, for about 164,383 and a half years. Or in other words, never. He could never repay that much money. No one would even lend that much money. It's an absurdly inflated number, but that's kind of the whole point. There was nothing that this servant could do except to rely on the king to show mercy and forgiveness. And the kingdom of heaven is like that king. If you look at this parable in Matthew chapter 18, then what we see is that Jesus actually tells this story in response to the question, how many times am I supposed to forgive my brother or my sister when they sin against me? How many chances did I get? Seven? Seven seems good. And Jesus answers, not seven, but 70 times seven. And it's important to know in Jesus' answer that seven and ten and multiples of those numbers when they're used in scripture aren't just numbers, they're symbolic numbers. They represent completion and perfection and absolute wholeness. Jesus might as well have been saying, you show forgiveness 172 kajillion trillion times every single day for 164,383 and a half years, or in other words, forever. Forgiveness isn't just a thing that we do, it's a posture that we live in, because that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's forgiving, and it's merciful. And we see this in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, too. Jesus says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the left cheek also. He says, love your enemies, and pray for the ones who persecute you so that you can be children of your Father in heaven. But this is really hard, right? It's not always the thing that we want to do. And if we keep reading Jesus' parable, then we see that it was pretty hard for the servant in the story too. The rest of the chapter goes on to tell us that this servant, who had been forgiven so much, left the king and went and found another servant who owed him much less, a hundred denarii, or a hundred days' wages, and he demanded to be paid. And when his friend could not repay him, the forgiven servant had him thrown into prison until he could pay off his debt. And then word gets back to the king, who is so angry that he hands the first servant over to the jailers to be tortured until he is able to pay back all that he owes. And we hear this same theme again in the Sermon on the Mount. After Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, he says this in Matthew 6, For if you forgive each other, uh, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And I think maybe we read these passages and it's easy to get the wrong idea and start to think, well, gee, maybe God isn't forgiving after all, or maybe I have to earn his forgiveness in order to actually receive it. But when we come at the Sermon at the Mount that way, that's when it starts to get stressful. And I don't think that's what the text is really saying because Jesus teaches us that the kingdom of heaven is marked by forgiveness. That's just what it's like. And if the forgiveness that we receive doesn't translate into forgiveness for other people, then we've kind of opted ourselves out of the kingdom. We said no thank you to our participation in it and built this wall between ourselves and God because unforgiveness and lack of mercy just is not what the kingdom looks like. You're either in the kingdom or you're out of it. So if I am going to be salt and light, if I'm going to represent the kingdom of heaven on earth, then my interactions with the world around me, the posture in which I live, should be marked by forgiveness. 
because the kingdom of heaven is forgiving, and I have been forgiven much. Jesus tells us more about what the kingdom is like in Matthew chapter 13, verses 47 to 50. And I think this one is my favorite. He says, once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught fish of every kind. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but they threw the bad away. And this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and they will separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them in a blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the part of my heart that is still seven years old and wants desperately to follow all of the rules very well all of the time reads this and immediately goes, yikes, I had better make very sure that I am a good fish and you all had better keep your bad fish nonsense really far away from me. You can goof off at the start of choir practice if you want to, but I will be sitting in the front row ready to practice. Thank you very much. I'm being a little bit silly with this, but it really is tempting to live this way, to distance ourselves from people that we have decided for some reason or other are just bad fish because we're afraid that they will contaminate us somehow, or they will spoil what we have built, or they will ruin our chances. It's maybe even easier to do this. We can do it even by accident, but it's missing the whole point. Because notice that Jesus did not say that the kingdom of heaven is like a bunch of very good and holy fish. He said the kingdom of heaven is like a net. A net that was let down into a lake and took in every kind of fish that came across it. Not fish that met a certain criteria, not fish that were all of the same kind, not fish that shared the same political and social beliefs, not fish that were likable, every kind of fish, maybe even an old boot or two. And in the end, God is the one who sorts it out. Jesus sorts it out, not me and not you, because who am I to decide which fish are good, who's in and who's out? My business as salt and light in the world isn't to try to fill my net with good fish, it's to build a net that welcomes in everyone that comes across it and leads them to Jesus, because that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. And if we listen, we can hear these same themes in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, too. Jesus says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them, because if you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Then later in chapter 7, he says, do not judge, or you too will be judged, for in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Jesus said that if you are performing righteousness in front of others so that they will know that you're a very good fish, then you've got it wrong. And if you've made it your business to judge the value of other people, rather than making sure your own heart is right with God, then you've got it wrong. You're spending your energy in the wrong places because that just isn't what the kingdom looks like. It's welcoming, and it takes in every kind. And Jesus models this for us, even in the Sermon on the Mount. He starts chapter 5 speaking just to his closest disciples, but by the end of chapter 7, the crowds of people who had followed him from Galilee, from the ten towns, from Jerusalem, from all over Judea, from the east of the Jordan River, all of them had come and had gathered. They came in close so they could hear him. And these are the people who had been sick or demon-possessed or paralyzed or outcast in some way. They were the ones who'd been living on the margins, and Jesus brought them in close because he was living like the kingdom of heaven. 
So if I am going to be salt and light, if I'm going to represent the kingdom of heaven on earth, then my interactions with those around me and the posture that I live in should be marked by welcome and inclusion because the kingdom of heaven is welcoming and I have been brought in close. And then one more, which is really two more. In Matthew 13, verses 31 to 33, Jesus told another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. And though it is the smallest of all seeds, when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked through all the dough. Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. And if you read the parable and you get stuck in, well, actually the mustard seed isn't the smallest seed and it doesn't grow into the biggest plant, then you're sort of missing the point of parables. Jesus uses something that is famously tiny to illustrate how the kingdom works starts as something small, almost unnoticeable, and then it grows quietly and consistently into something enormous and life-giving and life-sustaining. And he says that the kingdom of heaven is like yeast mixed into 60 pounds of flour. If you're a baker at all, then you know that 60 pounds of flour is just so much flour. It'd be enough to feed hundreds of people a meal of only bread. But somehow, Slowly, that little bit of yeast works its way through until it causes the whole batch of dough to rise. Tiny, almost insignificant things that grow into something huge and spectacular. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. And this is sort of in contrast to the idea that Jesus' first audience would have had and that we still sometimes have, that in order for God's kingdom to come and in order for his will to be done on earth, there would have to be some kind of political revolution or violence or protest, but that's just not what God's kingdom is like. It's not about voting or power. It can't be legislated into being. It starts in the small things. And if we look at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, it can sometimes feel daunting and overwhelming, but what he's calling us to aren't a series of impossibly difficult hurdles that we have to cross. He's calling us to mustard seeds and to yeast, just small, consistent ways of being that turn into something enormous and life-giving. The kingdom of heaven is salt and it's light. It's seeking reconciliation. It's examining my heart for anger. It's honoring God and my family and my neighbors with my thoughts, as well as with my words and with my actions. It's settling disputes quietly. It's letting my word be enough. It's loving little way after little way. It's giving in secret and praying in private and fasting quietly. It's setting my heart little bit by little bit on the things of God. It's forgiveness every day. It's choosing to be welcoming. It's small, consistent acts of love. So if I am going to be salt and light, if I'm going to represent the kingdom of heaven on earth, then my interactions with the world around me and the posture in which I live should be marked by tiny, consistent acts of love because that is how the kingdom grows. And so if we know this, if we know that this is what the kingdom of heaven is like, 
then we know how to be salt and light in it. We know what the life that Jesus is calling us to looks like. And then suddenly, at least for me, the Sermon on the Mount isn't so stressful anymore. And instead, it's liberating. It's an invitation into a way of living that is marked by forgiveness and welcome and love and growth that frees me to just love Jesus and love you. We can be the very best little lights that we can be, one small act of love at a time. So would you pray with me this morning? Father, today we thank you that we are people who have been forgiven. We've been brought in close. We've been deeply loved. You have taken us from the margins and brought us into your kingdom. And as we seek to follow you, as we crowd in around the mountaintop to hear what you would say to us, we ask that you would help us to live as kingdom people, to be salt and light, to be agents of change in our world who point people to you. In small, consistent, daily ways, would you teach us to be forgiving and to show mercy, to welcome and to include, to show love? Would you use our small efforts and turn them into something more, something that is huge and life-giving, that is a blessing to the world around us? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.